You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. All right, good morning, Citizens Church. Again, my name is Andrew, if you don't know me, and I'm one of the pastors here at Citizens. And I'm excited to be here today preaching to you for the second time this year and the first time as an actual pastor. So for those of you who don't know, uh, my actual day job is I work at NASA as an engineer. And as part of my job, I present my work at different conferences. Now, normally at these conferences, I'm introduced with something along the lines of Andrew is an expert in optical navigation in the Navigation and Mission Design Branch at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. He has extensive operational experience from the OSIRIS-REx mission to asteroid Bennu, and has supported many other deep space concepts. See, at these conferences, you need to provide a bio for yourself. Usually, people use this as an opportunity to brag about themselves, something like, this is Dr. John Doe. Dr. Doe has six PhDs and is a leading expert in doing special things and is the best things in sliced bread. And in some ways, this bragging makes sense. Uh, you see, these conferences are networking opportunities. They're opportunities to identify future collaborations. And also, you're giving a presentation. So with this bio, you're giving your ethos or why people should listen to you and not just tune out and go work on some work emails or something. So returning to scripture, today we're going to move out of the prologue from the Gospel of John into the narrative. And in the narrative portion, we see John recount eyewitness accounts of Jesus in order to illustrate the truth and confirm the truth that he has laid out for us in the prologue. Specifically, in our passage today, which Chris just read for us, we see the, we are introduced to John the Baptist. And we see that John is visited by some very important people who want to know who he is and why he is doing what he is doing. Now, based off the work conference illustration, you might expect John to reply in a way that puffs himself up and gives credence to his ministry. Instead, he doesn't answer the way we would expect. And he points to the Supreme One to come, who is so incredible that the lives of anyone who knows him are completely changed. Before we dive in, let's pray. Father, we know that you are the Supreme Lord of all creation and that you have come to earth as our Savior. Lord, we ask that today you would help us to understand who Christ is. And Lord, we ask that that knowledge of who Christ is would not just be head knowledge, but would turn into heart knowledge for us and transform our lives to bring you glory. Lord, specifically for myself, I ask that you would help me to preach with clarity, that you would help me to, to preach your word faithfully, and that people would hear it and respond. That's all this in your son's name. Amen. So the first thing we're going to look at is who is John? Now, quick note, I want to say here, when I say John, I'm going to be referring to John the Baptist today, because that's who the narrative is primarily about, at least at the first level. When I need to refer to the author of the gospel, I'm going to say John the Apostle. So John is John the Baptist. John the Apostle is the author of the book we're reading. So with that out of the way, let's go ahead and dive in. So the first thing we see in verses 19 and then 24 through 25 is that a group of priests and Levites consisting of at least some who were Pharisees, come all the way from Jerusalem to find out who John is and why he's doing weird things, specifically why he's in the wilderness calling people to repentance and baptizing them. So this is likely an official delegation of the religious leaders sent from the temple in Jerusalem. Therefore, it's an official delegation sent from the leaders of all of Judaism. And based off of what they've heard so far, they're very intrigued with who this John is, and they have some preconceptions about who he might be. So the first thing they do when they get there is they ask him to try and confirm some of these preconceptions, likely to try to make themselves look good and be like, oh yeah, we knew who you were. 
So the first thing they ask John is, no, it's not explicitly recorded, is if he's the anointed one or the Christ. This is a reference to the promised Messiah. That is the uh, line from the stump of Jesse, the, the Davidic king who would come and restore Israel to its former glory and restore them as God's people. John answers succinctly, no, he's not the Messiah. Next, they ask if he's the physical return of Elijah. This is a reference to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, the day of the Lord here is a reference to the day of God's judgment on the world and restoration of his faithful people. Elsewhere, it's explicitly associated with the coming of the Messiah as well. So based off of this verse, many at this time expected Elijah to physically return from heaven. The reason they expected him to physically return has to do with the fact that in Scripture we see Elijah doesn't actually die. Rather, instead, while he is still alive, he is carried up into heaven by God. And the idea that John is Elijah here is strengthened a lot, actually, by John's appearance and actions, which you are told elsewhere in the Gospels are very similar to Elijah. We see that they both wore fur. They both lived in the wilderness. They both preached repentance to the people. And they both opposed corrupt leaders. There were a lot of parallels here that really helped people think, okay, this John is probably Elijah. Despite all of this making sense, John answers, no, he's not Elijah. The next thing they ask is if he's the prophet. This is a capital P prophet, if you see in the, in the text there. And this is the prophet that's foretold by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. That reads, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So this prophet was also associated with the end times, associated with the restoration of God's people, renewing the covenant with them, bringing them back to God. And the thing that this prophet would do would be faithfully speak and do all that God tells him with the very authority of God. And we see that on the rest of Deuteronomy 18. Again, John answers no. So there are over three so far. And if you've noted so far with these questions, there's a common theme to all of them. They all have to do with the end times in some ways. And this makes sense. The group of people who were asking him had at least some Pharisees in them. And these Pharisees were very attuned with the end-time prophecies. In fact, much of their hope was placed in these end-time prophecies. Based off of that, a lot of their time was devoted to interpreting and understanding these prophecies and how they would actually play out. So they had preconceived notions about what would happen in the end times. And they're always looking for signs that these things are about to happen. Additionally, at this time, Israel is under Roman occupation. Right? They're not very happy about that. So even just the typical everyday Jew is desperate to hear from God because he's been silent for hundreds of years. They're not an independent nation. They're living under this oppression. They're taxed heavily. They're probably forced into labor a lot. So it's not a good situation for them, and they're desperate to hear from, from God. So they're also desperate for these promises to be fulfilled. So when John shows up and does weird things, one of those weird things being baptism, which at that time was something that was used to... Uh, help with conversion of Gentiles into Judaism rather than something that was preached to Jews themselves, people would instantly start thinking of the end times. So even though these questions make sense, ultimately John answers no to all of them. And so at this point, probably with a bit of exasperation, the delegation asks, who are you and why are you baptizing, you, baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And we see this in verses 22 and 25. So essentially, they come to the point of saying, okay, we give up. Tell us who you are and what gives you the right to do these weird things. 
And to be honest, if you or I came along on someone like John, wearing fur, living in the wilderness, eating locusts and honey, calling people to repentance, we'd probably be like, hey, what are you doing as well? Now, at this point, if you're not familiar with the narrative of John the Baptist, you probably view this as a great opportunity for John to puff himself up here and give credence to his ministry and possibly even catapult his ministry to the next level to reach more people than he could ever have envisioned before. He's got a captive audience with some of the most important people in his day and time, and the right answer here could really help him out. And that seems like the natural response to us. That's probably how you or I would respond, and we see that's the natural response based off of how people behave at these conferences with their introductions. Ultimately, though, that's not what John does. Let's look at verse 23 and verses 26 through 27. 23 reads, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So that's John's answer to who he is. Then in verses 26 through 27, his answer to why he's baptizing, he says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So the first thing that John does is he quotes Isaiah 43, claiming that he is a herald crying to prepare the way of the Lord. At this time, this herald in Isaiah 43 was kind of a glossed over figure. See, he only really shows up here in Isaiah 43. He doesn't appear to play a significant role at the first, in, uh, he seems to play a relatively insignificant role. And so he wasn't really a major player in the view of the end times that were held by the Pharisees and the other religious leaders of that day and age. The next thing he does is he announces that the one he's preparing the way for is so far above him, he isn't even worthy to untie his sandals. Now, that might seem weird to us. Most of you probably aren't going around and untying people's sandals, except maybe as a practical joke. But culturally at this time, to remove sandals and shoes for another was something that was reserved solely for slaves. So by saying this, John is saying he's not even worthy to be considered a slave of the one he is preparing the way for. So let's review briefly. Up to this point, John has the opportunity to puff himself up, to elevate his ministry, to reach more people for God than he could have ever envisioned doing, and instead he does the exact opposite. Instead, he goes, I'm not even worthy to be a slave of the one I'm who's to come. Can you imagine someone doing this today at a work conference? They go up and their introduction is, hey, this is Joe Schmo. He's not very important. In fact, you should probably just tune him out and listen to the next guy. That's essentially what John does. The humility here is even more incredible when we consider that Jesus later says of John in Matthew 11, 11, that he is the greatest of all those born, under woman, born of woman under the old covenant. So Jesus is saying John is exceedingly great and still, in comparison, John is nothing more than a slave. Ultimately, so far, we've seen that very important people come to John to figure out who he is and why he's doing weird things. But John doesn't take this as an opportunity to puff himself up, to increase his ministry. Instead, he compares himself to a slave who's just announcing the one who is truly worth investigating. Now, before we move on, I want to just take a moment here and address a question some of you who are familiar with Scripture might have. You recall earlier when John was asked directly if he was Elijah, he answered no. But if you're familiar with the rest of Scripture, you may be like, wait a second. Doesn't Jesus later say that John is Elijah? Yeah, it's right here in Matthew 11:14. Jesus says, John the Baptist is Elijah. I found a contradiction in Scripture. Now, before you get ahead of yourself, no, you didn't find a contradiction in Scripture. There's two different things being addressed in these passages here that we need to understand to see what each is, to fully understand each one of them. 
So recall earlier I mentioned that the Pharisees are very well studied in end-time prophecies and have detailed expectations of how they're going to play out. So they have these preconceived notions. One of those preconceived notions is that Elijah would return physically from heaven. It would be Elijah himself, Elijah's body, Elijah's spirit, all these things that return from heaven to signify the coming of the Messiah. So when John is asked if he is Elijah, he understands they're asking from this context, and the answer to that question is most assuredly no. John is not Elijah in the flesh. In fact, we know from Luke's gospel, John is born to parents, to human parents. He is a human just like any of us. Therefore, there is no way he could be Elijah in the flesh because the Bible doesn't teach that reincarnation is a thing. So John is just another human. So he is not Elijah in the flesh. Now let's look at Matthew 11, verses 14 through 15, which will be on the screen behind me. Here Jesus says, And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Note specifically the introductory and concluding statements here. If you are willing to accept it, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus uses these phrases throughout his life to alert the hearer and us as the readers that he's correcting a misinterpretation or a misconception. That is, to the original hearers, what he says in the middle would have sounded strange because it was not what they would have expected to happen. The misinterpretation that he's correcting here is that Elijah would return in the flesh, but that's not required of the prophecy in Malachi 4. Instead, Jesus argues that John is Elijah in the spirit and power of Elijah, which we see called out specifically in Luke's gospel. Essentially, Jesus is saying John is a type of Elijah who plays a similar role, he preaches a similar message, he does similar things, and that is what the prophecy of Malachi 4 is about. Therefore, this isn't a contradiction. John is Elijah in the sense that he carries out Elijah's duties with the same spirit and power that Elijah did, that same spirit and power being the spirit and power of God that are poured out on both Elijah and John, but not in the sense of being physically Elijah as the Pharisees expected. All right, so the next thing, let's look at who John, John is pointing the way to. See, John's quite an interesting person. We could spend a lot of time talking about him. He's important enough to have religious leaders go out of their way to come to him to figure out why, who he is, but ultimately he's unworthy to even be considered a slave of the one he's preparing the way for. So newsflash, that person he's preparing the way for is Jesus. And the first thing we learn about Jesus from John's testimony of him is that he is great. Jesus is exceedingly great. Again here, in comparison, John, important in his own right, and the greatest under the Old Testament, attested by Jesus himself, and that means he's greater than Elijah, he's greater than Elisha, he's greater than David, Solomon, Moses, Aaron, and Abraham, he is not even worthy to be considered Jesus' slave in comparison. There's a larger gap here between John and Jesus than there is between the poorest child in the least important country of the world and the richest leader of the most important country of the world today. In fact, the comparison is hardly worth making, and not through a lack on John's part, but rather through a complete excellence on the part of Jesus. The next thing we see John testifies about Jesus comes in verse 29. He says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So there's a ton wrapped up in this title for Jesus, but we're just going to hit the key point here. And there's really two primary different interpretations of this key point, and we're going to hit on both of them. So the first interpretation is that the Lamb of God here is referring to imagery that was becoming common in Jewish extra-biblical apocalyptic literature in this time period, 
And some commentators noted that uh, this was something that was becoming common. Typically, this imagery is used to depict a figure like a lamb who comes in judgment to rid the world of sin. And we see this imagery used explicitly in another book by John the Apostle, Revelation, where the lamb is worthy to open the scrolls of judgment for the sins of mankind. And we just read that corporately a little bit ago. In this sense, takes away the sin of the world, has a view of judgment in mind. Sin is removed by punishing those who commit it and removing those responsible for committing it. The argument for this is strengthened by the fact that the verb for takes away here in the original Greek is not the verb used for bears, which is what is usually associated with Jesus' atoning work elsewhere in Scripture. The next interpretation of this would be that the sacrificial lamb, or that this is referring to the sacrificial lamb of Isaiah 53, who takes away the sin of the world, and the Passover lamb of the Exodus. Now, in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is led like a lamb to the slaughter and stricken for the transgression of God's people so that he can make many to be accounted righteous. This language indicates that the suffering servant would be punished in place of those who deserve it, taking the burden of God's judgment for our sins onto himself. Similarly, the Passover lamb was used to substitutionarily pay the debt of the firstborn, which was exacted on the Egyptians in judgment for their sin and enslaving Israel. The Israelites at that point in time were equally guilty in sin, as we know we are all guilty in sin, and so they also had a debt of the firstborn, but God gave them a way to pay that debt through the substitution of a lamb. Now, the argument for this being the right interpretation of what John meant here is John the Baptist's frequent reference to Isaiah, so he clearly knew Isaiah, he would have been familiar with these prophecies, and the fact that the Greek word used for lamb here is the same as the Greek word used for lamb in the Greek translation of Isaiah 53. And in both of those cases, it's not the typical translation used for lamb. It's kind of a weird word for lamb. Now, overall, based on these two different things, it's likely that John himself understood his testimony along the lines of the first option. That is, the lamb of God is coming in judgment. This is because throughout Scripture, and particularly here in John the Apostle's Gospel, it stressed that Jesus is the first one who equates the suffering servant, the sacrificial lamb, and the Messiah all together as one person. That being said, we know that God does and that God can and does inspire people through his spirit to speak better than they understand or know. We even see this explicitly called out in this gospel later, where John the Apostle recounts that Caiaphas spoke better than he knew at Jesus' trial. Therefore, it's valid and even correct in this instance to have both of these interpretations in mind of John's testimony. Indeed, we see they are both true statements of Jesus. He is the sacrificial lamb who comes and pays our debt on the cross to take away our sin, but he is also the lamb who was slain in Revelation, who comes back and brings judgment on all of those who have rejected him. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, how can one lamb come in both mercy and judgment? Aren't they contradictory ideas? If judgment is bringing punishment to those who have done wrong and thus deserve it, and mercy is showing pardon and compassion to those who have done wrong, even though they deserve judgment, how do they work together in one person? Once again, this isn't a contradictory statement. Indeed, nothing in Scripture is contradictory if you actually study it and understand what it's saying. This would be contradictory if mercy here meant that the punishment for the guilty was wiped away or ignored or completely removed. This is the idea of mercy we see played out in other religions, where a God showing mercy means that it's at the expense of his judgment. 
So in other religions, when a God shows mercy to someone, it's, he just completely ignores the punishment that they were due for the sins they committed. This is not the case here, though. In Christianity, the judgment due sinners is still poured out fully. In fact, it is pulled out fully on the Lamb of God rather than us, and that is the mercy. Not that the judgment is removed, but that it is applied to another. And in the, the place of that judgment, we get the righteousness of the one who took the judgment applied to us. So, the next thing John testifies about Jesus is that he is the one which the Spirit will not depart from and who himself baptizes with the Spirit. And we see this in verses 32 through 33. Now, this fulfills a number of prophecies about Jesus. The first one is given directly to John himself, and we see it recounted here, that the one on whom the Spirit visibly descends, which we see recounted here and also in Matthew 3.16 at Jesus' baptism, is the one who is to come after him. This also fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 2, which reads, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This also is fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel 2, that God would pour out his Spirit on all people. And we see later that Jesus is Jesus baptizes people with the Spirit, which is God's Spirit, being poured out on them. So ultimately, with this statement, John is asserting that the one whom the Spirit of the Lord rests on is the shoot of the stump of Jesse, that is, he is a promised Davidic Messiah, who is to reign forever, and who has the authority to pour out God's Spirit on all people. We also see John testify that Jesus is eternal in verse 30. After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, how can Jesus come before John when we know that Jesus was born after John from Luke's gospel? This only works if Jesus existed before he was born. The only way Jesus could exist before he was born is indeed if he has existed for all time and is eternal. The prologue also tells us this truth, as Joey has unpacked for us over the past few weeks. So let's recap the testimony of John here that he gives of Jesus. So we see that Jesus is great. That he is the eternal Lamb of God who bears both the judgment that is due to us sinners and is worthy to open the scrolls of judgment on the world who rejects him. He is the promised messianic king from the Lion of David who inaugurates God's true eternal kingdom on earth. He is the one from whom the Spirit of God does not depart and who has the authority to baptize his followers with the same Spirit. In just a few statements, John has testified that Jesus fulfills a ton of Old Testament promises and types given to God's people, and that he is an incredible man upon whom all of human history will hinge. But this isn't everything John testifies about Jesus. There's one key testimony we haven't touched on yet that actually comes from John's testimony of himself. Recall when the, the priests and the um, Levites ask John who he is, he responds that he is a herald of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. Let's look in depth at what Isaiah 43 says. It reads, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So what is John's job? It's to prepare the way of the Lord. But if you note in your Bible, Lord here is capital L-O-R-D, Lord. And when you see all caps LORD in your Bible, that means that is the personal name for God himself, Yahweh. So Joey has touched on this a few times already, but John here is testifying that Jesus is God. He is preparing the way for God, and Jesus is the one he is preparing the way for. 
So even if John himself didn't fully realize it, he is probably the first person in all of history to testify to Christ's uh, deity. And this is a really important point. Joey has hit it a few times already. He just hit it last week. But we're going to just hit some of the main application points here again of why Jesus' deity is important. See, that Jesus is God in the flesh, not a God, but the one and only God, is a hinge of all of our Orthodox Christian beliefs. If Jesus isn't God, then his sacrifice on the cross wouldn't have actually been atoning and wouldn't have changed anything because a single man could not pay the debt due to the sinners of to, due to all sinners for all eternity. In fact, it couldn't even pay the debt for just those of us in this room, or probably even just me. Also, if Jesus isn't God, then God is lacking in relationship and had to create out of a need to be worshipped, making him dependent on us, his creation. And a God who is dependent on his creation is not a God who is worthy to be worshipped. If Jesus isn't God, then we don't have a compassionate high priest who fully understands us in the temptations we face and present these understandings to God the Father for all eternity. If Jesus isn't God, then he doesn't have the authority to baptize with the Spirit of God, for how could a man command God's Spirit? If Jesus isn't God, then ultimately he is an egotistical maniac based on the things he said and demanded of his followers. That Jesus is God changes everything. So let's review again. The fullness of John's testimony of Jesus is that he is the Lord who comes as a suffering servant, the Lamb of judgment, and messianic king par excellence, fulfilling God's promises to mankind stretching all the way back to the original fall in the Garden of Eden. Now, did John fully understand everything he said? Probably not. In fact, later in Scripture, we see him question Jesus because Jesus' actions don't align with what he expected of the Messiah. But we do know that John was empowered by God's Spirit specifically for this task, and we know from the rest of Scripture that these things are fully testified to. Therefore, we can be confident that John was testifying to these things as well, even if he himself didn't fully understand it. So, in light of all this, I want to ask us a question. Who are we? Now, with this question, I'm not asking us to identify ourselves with one of the characters in the narrative here. None of us are John the Baptist. We're not an Old Testament prophet. None of us are Jesus, and if you think you are, we need to have an urgent talk. And most of us are probably not the Pharisees, although maybe a few of us could identify ourselves with them. No, instead, I want to ask, in light of who Jesus is, who are you? And the answer here largely depends on whether you believe in him or not, so I'm going to address each one of them separately. First, to those of you who don't believe in Jesus as your Lord— I want to begin with a question for you. What are you waiting for? If you honestly investigate Jesus and the claims of the Bible, you will find them to be true. So why are you waiting to give your faith to Jesus? Let's look at some common objections. Maybe you have historical concerns that Jesus wasn't really a real person. You can rest easy in this. Jesus was a real person. He is mentioned even in non-Christian historical works, so we know he actually existed and was important enough to make a stir that he shows up in these historical works. Additionally, the Bible itself, when judged with the same expectations we used to judge other historical works in terms of authenticity and historicity, comes out far ahead of every other work we have. That is, the Bible is trustworthy. We can trust what it says. So from a historical perspective, we can be confident the Bible is a truthful recording of eyewitness accounts of Jesus' words and actions, as well as the testimonies of those who knew him best. 
Next, maybe you have religious concerns. By that I mean, do you think Jesus was real, but he was only a good moral teacher, not God himself? When we examine the claims that Jesus makes closely, we see that he precludes this view of him, as Joey pointed out last week. He claims complete obedience and claims to be God. If he isn't God, then he is far from a great moral teacher. He is an egotistical maniac who we should run far away from. Additionally, the miracles Jesus performed, his fulfilling as every Old Testament prophecy about him, and his resurrection from the dead show that we can trust his assertion and others' assertion that he is God. Maybe you have scientific concerns. You view religion as a crutch that we have evolved past. I want to make the argument here that science and Christianity are not at odds with each other. Rather, they're complementary. Not only can we be confident in the historicity of the Bible and Jesus as we discuss, but we know that God is a God of order, that he created creation with order, and he gave us scientific minds to be able to understand and investigate it. God didn't create us to ignore science, but rather to explore science, that it might cause us to glorify him and how incredibly wonderful and complex this creation that he has made for us is. And maybe, maybe ultimately your concern is you just don't want to give up control of your life. And this is probably where most of you find yourself. See, I understand. It's scary to give up control of your life, especially in our culture that stresses looking out for yourself and pulling yourself up by hard work. And it's true that to give up your life to Christ means you probably won't achieve success in the way you want to in this life. But I want to argue for you here that the benefits far exceed the temporary things of this life that you gain by giving your life to Christ. Those benefits include things like renewed relationship with the creator of the universe, adoption as his sons and being made co-heirs alongside of Christ. These are eternal things that are worth more than anything we can obtain in this life. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying these questions are invalid ones. Indeed, the Christian faith is very logical, and as long as we are honest in our evaluation of it, it is good to ask and investigate questions like these. But if you do investigate these questions honestly, you will find that Jesus really is who he says. Now, I don't have time to touch on every question you might have about Jesus or faith now. If you're curious, I or any of the pastors, whoever brought you here, I'm sure would be glad to discuss it with you after or sometime this week. But once you get past these questions and come to the understanding that Jesus is who he says he is, you must make a decision. You can either repent of the sins you've committed and give yourself to Christ's lordship and receive his promised blessings, or you can reject him. You can continue to pursue the fleeting and disappointing pleasures of this world, and you can fall under his eternal judgment. The God of the universe comes in either judgment or mercy. There is no in-between. You must make a decision and do so soon. You're not even guaranteed to make it to the end of this sermon. Now, to the believers, which is most of us, do you live your lives according to the truth that Jesus is supreme? See, Jesus requires a response from all of us, too, every second of our lives. He's not just a salve that we take off the shelf, apply to ourselves at our conversion to ease our guilt, and then put back on the shelf till the next time we commit a sin and apply his salve to ease our guilt and do so, so on for the rest of our lives. No, he is the Lord, the Savior of the world, the Messianic King who comes in both mercy and judgment with his authority. So does your life reflect these truths about Jesus as testified by John the Baptist? Let's look at some specific things that are required of us based off of who Jesus is. First, do you live your life with a heart overflowing with joy and humility because you have been made co-heirs with Christ when, like John, you aren't even worthy to be his slave? See, John was the greatest of everyone born under the old covenant. 
But because of Christ, even we who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than him, as we see in Matthew 11. Romans and Ephesians also remind us that we have gone from being dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walked to being adopted as God's sons. And none of that is our doing. It is solely through God's grace, precluding all boasting. Because of this, we who know Jesus should have such incredible joy and humility that the world can't help but notice. This applies both when things are going well, when God is blessing us materially in this life or financially or in a, uh, for with our family. It also applies when things are going difficult, when we're experiencing illness or death or sickness or financial ruin. The way we act in this life with joy and humility should be amazing to people, just as John's testimony that he's not even worthy to be a slave was likely amazing to the religious leaders who came to him. Second, do you live your life with the dual understanding of Christ being the Lamb of God in both mercy and judgment? Does this produce urgency in your evangelism? See, Jesus can come in final judgment at any time. And that judgment is terrible for anyone who doesn't believe in him. For those who do believe, though, he doesn't come in judgment, but incredibly, he comes in eternal mercy and grace. See, in Scripture, we see that nearly all of Jesus' followers are depicted as going to tell others about him. Right here with John, we see before Jesus has even begun his public ministry, John is proclaiming his greatness to the religious leaders of his day. Next week with Carl, we're going to see that the first disciples of Jesus, when they meet him, the first thing they do is run and tell their friends and family about him. So does that reflect your life? Are you running to tell others about Jesus? In his book, Follow Me, A Call to Die, A Call to Live, David Platt writes, If Jesus were just another religious leader on the landscape of human history, offering his thoughts and opinions regarding how people should live, then it would definitely be arrogant, unloving, and outright foolish for me or anyone else to travel around the world telling people they need to either follow Jesus or face hell. But Jesus is indeed more than just another religious teacher. And Jesus is indeed the resurrected God, Savior, and King who alone has paid the price for sinners and paved the way for everlasting salvation. So telling people everywhere about Jesus is the only thing that makes sense. It is the height of arrogance to sit silent while 597 million Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, and Sikhs go to hell. It is the epitome of hate to not sacrifice your very life to spread this good news among every person you know and every people group on the planet. Do you believe the gospel enough to let this transform your life? Do you understand how it is the epitome of hatred to not share the gospel with everyone you come in contact with? See, if we truly believe this, that we have the cure for eternal pain and suffering worse than any disease, any disability, any injury in this life, then we need to share that with others. Jesus comes with mercy for believers, but judgment for non-believers. Will we believers now harden our hearts and keep for ourselves this mercy, allowing those of us, those around us everywhere, every day to die to an eternity of judgment? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? Have you done it in the last month? Have you done it within the last year? Have you done it since you became a Christian? I think for most of us in this room, myself included, the answer is probably too long ago. Has God ever used you to bring anyone in your life to faith? Again, myself included, I suspect the answer for many of us in this room is no. In the rest of his book, Platt argues that the Christian life is meant to be one of bearing spiritual offspring. And if we are not producing spiritual offspring, then something is definitely wrong. 
Brothers and sisters, this is convicting, at least for me and probably for you. But conviction is a good thing if it produces in us a change of heart and repentance. Therefore, let us go forth with renewed urgency in our evangelistic effort. In fact, I want to leave us with a very specific challenge. Many of us over the coming weeks are going to be going back to visit family and friends, many of whom probably don't know who Jesus is. Use this as an opportunity to preach the gospel to them. We are going back for Christmas, the birth of the Savior. What better opportunity is there to take up a conversation about spiritual things? In fact, I challenge you, if you have these people in your life you're going to see over the coming weeks, to let your small group know this week and seek accountability and actually reaching out to them when you see them for the Christmas holiday. The third thing I want to ask us believers, and finally, I know this is going a little long, is Jesus really the supreme messianic king of your life? That is, do you follow his commandments and trust that his way is better than the way of the world? See, one thing we Protestants are really good at is remembering the grace of God. And this is a great thing. God's grace is something that should be remembered and worshipped and prayed and meditated on. But one thing this grace does not permit us to do is to continue to live in sin. What is required to receive this grace? We see in Scripture that it is to believe and to repent. So if you claim to be a Christian, but your life looks absolutely no different than anyone else's in the world, If you continue to walk daily in sins without ever trying to put them to death, then you have severely missed the point. And indeed, you should question your salvation, as John the Apostle reminds us in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6 of his first epistle, which reads, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Yes, we have been saved by God's judgment for the sins we commit by God's grace alone, whether those sins occur before or after our conversion. But when we become truly converted, we become so much more aware of the depravity of our sin and the supreme debt that it incurs and how that debt is paid on our behalf by Jesus himself that we can't help but stop sinning. If we therefore go on sinning without repentance, then our sins are all the more egregious as we essentially spit on Christ's redeeming work. In his book, The Mortification of Sin, John Owen says that as Christians, the sin that we allow to continue to fester in our hearts after tasting the grace of God displayed through Christ is more evil than all of the other sins of everyone who has never tasted of God's grace. And that's an adaptation to modern English because it's hard to read in the original. But with this quote, Owen is saying that the sin of us Christians is more evil than the sin of everyone who's never been a Christian. That's just one person. And note here that Owen is referring to sin that dwells in our heart, not just sin sin we commit outwardly, but the sin that is living in our heart, the desires, the thoughts of our mind. See, if Jesus is truly the messianic king, we cannot go on living in sin when he has commanded us otherwise. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we need perfection in our walk with Christ. We know that's impossible. In fact, we see that called out in John's, uh, John the Apostle's uh, epistle. No, what we do need, though, is to seek to put to death our sins through the Holy Spirit, through the process of mortification, and through the process of our sanctification. So, brothers and sisters, if you find that you are struggling with consistent sin issues in your life, Flee from them with all haste in the transforming grace and mercy of God. This isn't easy, 
particularly if these are sins that have become ingrained in your life through repetition and through time. But with the power of the Holy Spirit, you can take heart that you will ultimately be successful, even if it's not in this life. Now, some practical steps of how to do that. One thing is that small group this week, confess your sins to one another and seek accountability in them. Seek wisdom from those who maybe have dealt with those sins in their past. Another thing you can do is read The Mortification of Sin. It's a short book. You have to read it a few times because it is in pretty old language, but it lists a ton of very practical steps of how we can put to death our sin and how to understand our sin in light of who Jesus is. Citizens Church, Jesus is the eternal Lord who comes as a suffering servant, the Lamb of Judgment, and the Messianic King, fulfilling God's promises to mankind to restore us to relationship with him and bring judgment on the unrepentant. He is testified to by John the Baptist. He is testified to by John the Apostle. And he is testified to by all Scripture, both Old and New Testaments. This truth, by necessity, should transform and permeate the entirety of our lives. Most of us here, myself included, can admit that we have not lived our our faith out with the vibrancy we see demanded in Scripture. We have lived instead a life of pride and grumbling. We have lived a life of inconsistent or non-existent evangelism, and we have lived lives of lax pursuit of sanctification and the death of sin in our lives. Let us therefore repent of these things and move forward in the power of the Spirit. For when we repent, we know that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are great, Lord. We know that you are the king of the universe. We know that you come in both mercy and justice. Lord, help us to understand these things. Help us to to rid ourselves of our complacency, rid ourselves of continuing to live in sin, to rid ourselves of complacency and watching those around us die without any hope of a future, Lord. We confess, Lord, that we have not brought glory to you with our lives to this point. And we ask that going forward, Lord, you would would accelerate the the act of sanctification in us and that you would help us to, to always be seeking to glorify you with everything we do. Lord, we also thank you that despite these things, that ultimately you have forgiven us, Lord, despite our failures, whether they come before or after our conversion. We praise you for your grace, and we ask that that would transform us going forward. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.